method, there is this sense that the kids are, are trying a hypothesis. What if I put on this persona and then see how it works and then they can discard that and move on to something else. And you think about the scientific method. You're asking a question, you're forming a hypothesis, you're making experiments, you're drawing conclusions from that. And of course, we do that as well, even as adolescents or young adults or older adults, that's quite often we take on personas, ways of viewing the world, saying, how does this work? We test it out, and if it doesn't work, we, we move on. And in a way, that's what the, the preacher is doing here in our text, that he is, he's taking on these different personas. He's using a, a variation of the scientific method, and he's saying, how can we find meaning and significance in life? How can we find meaning and significance in this world under the sun? And so he tries on one persona, says, does this work? He tries on another persona, does this work? He continues to try on different personas. And, and really, he tries on three personas in this chapter. And I was calling it the, the extroverted billionaire. That's verse 1 to 11. The, the studious philosophy major, that's verse 12 to 17. He, then he tries on the emo punk rocker in verse 18 to 23. And then he tries on, offers us his conclusion, drawing this out from the text in verse 24 to 26. And so, so then we end up, do any of these work? And he, he discards each persona as he goes. So let's start then with his, the first persona that he takes on. He takes on the, the extravagant billionaire. And, you, and I actually was tempted to call this one not the extravagant billionaire, but the, the wild frat boy. But I thought in some ways the wild frat boy is poor and this person is rich. And so I ended up settling for the extravagant billionaire. But essentially he's testing this life, saying what if pleasure brings happiness? What if being able to buy anything you want, just experimenting with all material goods, maybe that will bring happiness. And so in verse 1, he said to his heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then you can see how he begins to, to test out pleasure. He gets wine. He gets out, he has houses and vineyards and gardens and parks, fruit trees, and of course, in the ancient Near Eastern world, kings would often build elaborate gardens because in a, for desert people, this is a sign of, of wealth. And then it says that not only did he have these elaborate gardens, think the DuPonts, think Longwood Gardens, beautiful place surrounding their home, uh, but he not only had beautiful gardens, but he had, he had slaves, male and female slaves, he had flocks, he had herds, he had silver, he had gold. He had singers, so he was surrounded by beautiful music and art. He had concubines, and the word translated concubines here in the ESV is really hard to interpret. You'll see a lot of different words. But they don't know exactly what it means, but most think it means concubine or harem. And then he says, finally, that I kept my heart from no pleasure. If there's anything that he wanted, he acquired it. And this is where we see that this is Solomon, as scholars speculate. Who is the preacher? This is pretty clearly Solomon. Because if you read 1 Kings, it describes his wealth, his power, that, that he had herds and gold and 
slaves and art and many, many wives and concubines, and, and he lived this life of excessive pleasure, the life of this extravagant ancient billionaire, so much so that, remember, that the Queen of Sheba visits him in, in 1 Kings 10, and it says that, that she was breathless when she saw all of his wisdom and his wealth. And, and she says, the half of it was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpass all the report that I heard, that she was amazed. And so this is where you could think about some sort of a celebrity documentary that you see on TV where you tour the, the estate of an extravagant billionaire and you see all of the possessions they have, all of their wealth. Uh, I saw something about Oprah Winfrey this week that, that she has $2 billion and they said that she has her own food growing on a volcano in Maui. She has a private jet. She's had special roses genetically engineered for her garden. She has a, in her house in Telluride, Colorado, she has a wine mine uh, where it's a, like a, it looks like a mine. You take an antique cart down and she has 1,600 bottles of wine. Uh, she has a vast art collection. In 2016, she sold a painting for $150 million. So this is somebody who is able to have really anything they want. If you have billions of dollars, there's nothing that you want that you can't have to some degree when it comes to material possessions. And she wouldn't be unique among the, the world of billionaires that you have the, somebody like Elon Musk or famous actors or famous actresses or famous rappers, the people who have more wealth than one can imagine. And you say, okay, well, if I'm going to use the scientific method, maybe I would like to volunteer for that study. Sometimes you hear, you know, you can sign up for a, a, a study where you, you're a volunteer and you, and, you get, and, they'll, they'll, and you get to give your results. And you'll say, I'll sign up for the, the billionaire test and to see maybe if my life would be better if I had infinite wealth. And, we, and sometimes I think we believe that our life would be better if we could have anything we want and buy anything we want, if we could have any pleasure that we want, like the preacher had here. But this is where the scripture is helpful, because he's, he's taking on this persona of the extravagant billionaire, and then he tries it out, and at first it seems good, but then look at what he says in verse 11. He, we see that it, it doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of his heart. He has all of this wealth, and he says, Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And you see this if you study people who have wealth beyond our imagination, that, that they are generally not happy people, that you can't buy happiness, you can't buy contentment, that you, you work so hard, you acquire so much, and you say it's vanity, it's, it's breath, it's wind, it's temporary, it's, it's passing away. There's nothing here that you can really root your life in and your identity in. There's no happiness and lasting meaning here. So that's where the, the preacher then discards this persona, and he moves to his second persona. He says, that doesn't work. And so then he takes up what I'm calling the, the second persona, the studious philosophy major. And really by philosophy major, I'm using philosophy in the older sense of the word, the etymological sense of the lover of wisdom. 
And this is what Jonathan unpacked for us two weeks ago, but that he was a man of wisdom. And we know that about Solomon. He, the God had given him great wisdom. And even in the earlier part, I think it's kind of funny how he, he says that he took on this, this life of the extravagant billionaire. And several times he's saying, while holding on to my wisdom. So he's saying, don't worry, I didn't go too far into that, that lifestyle that I, I lost my wisdom. Uh, but then he says, what about the, the life of wisdom? Loving, wise living, trying to live the good life, the wise life. And look what he says in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And so he's saying that, that if you have to choose between the extravagant billionaire and the, the life of the, the studious philosophy major who loves wise living, he says, choose the studious philosophy major. Be Thoreau moving out into the woods. Uh, that there is something about pursuing wisdom that actually turns out better. That the person who focuses not on the accumulation of wealth, but on living wisely, will often be happier, be more content, that their life will turn out better. And you remember that Jonathan talked about that as well, that, that the idea of wisdom is, is it's helpful, that if you live according to the wisdom principles of the book of Proverbs, generally your life will turn out better. Generally, you'll be happier. And so, again, if you're going to choose, choose that, because just living for pleasure, we see even just in our world how that doesn't turn out. You, you have tons of money, and so you buy lots of nice food, and then you gain weight. Or you buy lots of expensive wine, and then you get addicted to it. Or you have so many relationships that you see this wreckage of broken relationships behind you that, that what you thought was living for pleasure, even in the world sense, doesn't turn out that well. But then you say, well, does the persona then of just living for wisdom under the sun work? Well, there's still a problem with it here, according to verse 15. He says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Maybe you feel that sometimes, that maybe you have a, a sibling who you think, that my sibling has not been as wise as me, but their life has been great, and I've had lots of problems. Why have I been so very wise? Or you can just think of what, what he's pointing out about, about the reality of, of death in verse 16. He says, for, the wise as, for of the wise as of the fool there is, no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise, wise die just like the fool. And we know this just from experience. I remember when I was in college, there was a student who, who drove drunk and then died in a car accident. It was very hard on the student body. But there was also a self-righteous sense of, well, he did something foolish and he experienced consequences from that. But many years before that, I had two second cousins who as teenagers died in a car accident together, were just driving home, were living wisely. And so then you, you look at it and you say, wait a second, here, here are two young women in the prime of life, 
living wisely. Here's someone else that was living foolishly, but yet the same result happened to both of them. And so is there any point? Is there any purpose? Is it better just to live for pleasure? Is it better just to live for the things of this life if that's going to be the result in the end? And maybe this is something that, that, that you think as well, that you, you feel the weight of just the injustice of life. And you recognize that, yes, my life will generally turn out better if I live in wisdom. But since there's no guarantee, what is the point? Is there any advantage to being wise under the sun without reference to God? And so here again, the, the preacher discards this second persona as well. And then he turns to the, the third persona. And this is the one that I was calling the, the emo punk rocker. That, that he's, he's tried the life of money and the life of pleasure. That was empty. That was meaningless. He tried the life of getting good grades and being studious and trying to live well. And that didn't turn out well. He still suffered. And so then, then he began to lose hope, verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. I just hated everything. And so I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. And then he got a guitar and he began, got tattoos. Uh, there's a sense of it's just pointless, it's meaningless. Verse 23, for all his days are of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. In a way, what he's saying is that the, the emo punk rocker, if you want to call it that, is actually seeing something about reality that would be true if there were no God. If we consider life apart from God, Maybe thing is, everything is meaningless. Maybe you just burn everything up. Maybe there's no purpose. Maybe life isn't worth living. That there, there's something actually logical about that result if we just consider life here under the sun. And I think what's helpful from the preacher here is that sometimes we wake up and we wonder if our lives have meaning and purpose. We might feel bitter. We might feel depressed. I mean, maybe we still, we look like well put together suburbanites on the outside, but then inside we feel like the angry punk rocker, that we feel like life is pointless. We feel like it's meaningless. And what this is saying is that there's a logic there, that, that it's not an accident that we feel that way because that is life without reference to God. It's not living on borrowed capital from the meaning that we have in God. But this is where the, the, the preacher begins to, to pull the pieces together because he's been showing all of these different personas that don't work. We can't be the extravagant billionaire because the pleasure doesn't satisfy in the end. We can't be the, just the studious philosophy major because life can still turn out horribly even if you seek wisdom. And then, of course, the, the emo punk rocker is not a way to live. And so is there a way forward? Is there any hope? And then look at verse 24 as he starts to bring the conclusion of this section. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his trouble. This also I saw is uh, this 
also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And at this point in the, in the narrative, scholars point out that there's a, there's a turning point, that if you were to go back and read verse 1 of chapter 1 up until this point, um, God is mentioned just once, but not in the sense of God, of the, the loving God who's present with his creation. But here, this world under the sun, of this world without reference to God, suddenly the, the reality of God comes into focus again in the narrative. And, and we begin to see God not just as this fatalistic force that makes life hard and meaningless, but then you see this gracious nature of God, the God who gives wisdom, the God who gives knowledge, the God who gives beauty, the God who gives joy in this life. And so, yes, we don't just live for, for pleasure or for wisdom or think everything is meaningless, but instead we are called to live practical lives where we appreciate the simple pleasures while recognizing that they won't bring lasting contentment. I'll read that again. That, that's the, the main gist of this section, that we're called to live practical lives where we appreciate the simple pleasures of life while recognizing that they won't bring lasting contentment. So look again at verse 24. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toils. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And so this isn't just that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But this is the sense of you can enjoy life. It's okay to enjoy a good meal with your friends or with your family. It's okay to enjoy good, good music or a good bottle of wine. It's, a, it's okay to enjoy uh, the, the, the beauty of art or good poetry. It's, an, it's, it's okay to appreciate the beauty of life. And we're actually able to do that because we see that these gifts aren't ultimate. That we, we appreciate these, these small things in life saying that this is a gift from God, this good conversation, this good food, the things that I'm enjoying today, this beautiful garden, these are things that I can, I can enjoy. God has given them to me for enjoyment. They're the reflection of the goodness of God, the care of God for us, but we know that they'll eventually pass away. So look at verse 26. He says, For to the one who pleases God... Or, sorry, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. And so just wrapping this up, pulling it together, you see that at the end here, he's highlighting these two different types of people. There's the, there's the sinner, and then there's the one who pleases God. And the sinner then is one who is trusting in the gifts of God rather than the giver, giver of those gifts. That, that the sinner is the one who is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, who is 
seeking to live according to his own way rather than God's way. And it says here that the, the, the life of the, the sinner is gathering and collecting, only to have it pass away, that, that the things that they enjoy will eventually pass away, and that the best things that are to be enjoyed are here in this life. But then he mentions another type of person, the one who pleases God. And he says that the one who pleases God is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, is able to enjoy life in the world that God has given. You say, well, that sounds good. Maybe that's what I would want. To... But then you say, well, what do I have to do to please God then? How do I become the one who pleases God? How is that my identity, my persona, not the identity persona of the, of the sinner that he's highlighting? What's the difference? And this is where we see a problem as you zoom out to the story of the Bible, that, that the Bible is a story that says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we all fall in the category of sinner, in a sense, in this text. And so you wonder, well, what, where does that leave us then? And the Bible says that of those who have pleased God, who has been pleasing to God, that the only person who is truly pleasing to God in all of human history is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who experienced the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, that the joy of God, and isn't it true that when you look at Jesus's life, that you see the wisdom of this verse? You see the wisdom of verse 24 and 25, that, 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 that he is somebody who ate and drank and had enjoyment. He had good conversation with his friends. He ate good meals. He made water into wine at the marriage supper of Canaan and Galilee. Even though he knew that his, his mission on earth was temporary, he still was able to enjoy the finer things of life to a certain degree, but yet recognizing that those things aren't ultimate because eventually he lost all of those things, that he was abandoned by his friends. Eventually he was nailed to the cross where he, he suffered the, the weight of sin. That if you're thinking of, of taking on a persona, that Jesus took on the persona of the sinner on the cross, uh, not in the way that he himself was sinful, but yet in a, in a real way, he was taking our sin on himself. And he was bearing the penalty for our sin on the cross. And then he died and he rose again from the dead. And in the light of the resurrection, then you say, well, what persona are we called to put on? And we're not just the, the kids playing dress up, trying to put on a new, a new outfit, but the, the Bible says that when we trust in Jesus, that we are united to him by faith. And it says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on the righteousness of Christ, put on the, the identity of Christ, that his identity becomes our identity. That's why we're called Christians, because we are in Christ, that, that we belong to Christ. And so then you, you look at this text again and you say, Am I the sinner? Yes, we're sinners. Do we please God? And there's those in Christ that, yes, we are pleasing to God. And it's not that he is pleased with our own moral performance, but he's pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. And if we are clothed in Jesus, if we're united to Jesus, then he is pleased with us as well in Christ. And that means that in this life, we can enjoy the simple pleasures in Christ, that you can enjoy 
good food. You can enjoy that good conversation with your friend and that you can enjoy it because you're not staking your ultimate hope in those things. That if, if you think this life is all there is and you're having a good conversation with a friend, you're thinking maybe this is it. Maybe this is the last good conversation I'll have. If you're enjoying a good meal with a friend and you think this is life is all there is, well, maybe this is going to be it. This is the last good conversation I'm going to have. But then if we have the eternal perspective of Jesus, life in him, then you say that the good that we enjoy here is just a little preview, a teaser trailer for something greater to come, that the good meal is pointing to a greater meal. The good conversation is, is pointing to deeper relationships. We can enjoy life looking to Jesus Christ who gives us hope and peace, the one who gives true identity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for giving us hope and peace and life. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to look to the things of this life for our safety and our security, uh, for our identity. And we know that if we try to define our lives by our wealth or our wisdom, or if we just give up hope, that that's no way to live. And so, Father, we pray that we can be those who put on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would put on Christ, that we'd be in Christ, that we would trust in him, that we would abandon all hope in ourselves, we would abandon all hope of being able to please you through our good works and good performance and look to the pleasing life of Jesus alone for hope. And Father, we we pray though that as we as we prepare this week to go out into the world to serve you, that, that we could appreciate the, the gifts that you've given, that we wouldn't just think that, that the, the joys of our life don't matter just because they're temporary, but that we would see them as temporary and fix our hope in you, knowing that in Christ, Greater things are yet to come, um, and that our temporary wandering in the city of this world will be filled by eternal home in the world to come. And so we rest our hope there through Christ. Amen.